This podcast is brought to you by The City Church in Mississauga, Ontario. For more information, please visit thecitychurch.ca. We hope you are encouraged by this message from our lead pastor, Frank Coulter. All right, well, we are in the fourth week of our series called uh, You Asked For It. Uh, Before we start with, I just wanted to make mention of one thing. Um, When we did our Unite conference earlier this year in September, we asked you to bring in um, items, different type of items to be able to... Um, for our students to create packages for the homeless and different people in need. And it was the organization that we sent those items to was uh, Wood Green Community Services. And they're located in Toronto. And they sent us a thank you note. They sent you a thank you note. So I just wanted to read it to you. Um, It says, to the amazing people at the city church. How did they know? Thank you so much for your very kind donation of food and hygiene products care packages. Your generosity has made an immediate difference in the lives of many wood green clients who struggle to afford basic necessities. Thank you to the city church. You truly have made a difference. Sincerely, Wood Green Community Service. So way to go, church. That was awesome, all that you guys provided. All right, so uh, so far in this series, uh, the first week we talked about meditation, practical ways for us to meditate on God's word. And the second week we had Tony Cook here and he talked about divorce. I know he helped a lot of people um, talking along the lines of those subjects. Now last week we talked about predestination and I'm certainly not going to go and revisit all of these topics. If you missed any of these topics, um, they're all available on our website or on our podcast and also on our church app. You can listen to all of the messages there. Um, but earlier this year in the spring, the genesis of this series is I just put it out there for you to ask any questions that you might have. What does the Bible teach about? And then people sent in a bunch of questions. So those, all, those are all the questions uh, that have come in so far. And we've got two more weeks in this series, and we have another interesting question for us to discuss today. The question is, what does the Bible teach about war? Obviously, murder is wrong, but God sanctioned war for Israel many times in the Bible. And like I said last week, another very juicy question. And if I can also uh, one-up this question in one sense, uh, not only did God sanction war in the Old Testament, but God sanctioned, as we would describe, sometimes a genocide. A gen- like, I'll go in Israel and just wipe out this group of people so that they're no longer on the face of the earth. And then how do we um, figure those two things out? How do we bring the God of the Old Testament Um, in line with Jesus? Is there any congruence that we can find? Is there any answers that we can find in the scripture uh, to help us understand this? Because this is a big topic for a lot of people. This is um, a struggle for a lot of people um, as they try to look at the Old Testament, as they look at the New Testament, and they can't see uh, any congruence between God and his activities. But for the most part, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we would see God as a saving, loving, merciful forgiving, healing God. And we see that in the Old Testament, and then we see that in the New Testament. Then we, once again, we have these sort of anomalies or these things in the Old Testament that seem to be outside of the character of God. So how would we answer this question? So I've been, I'm doing a lot of reading on this subject uh, to try to give a good answer. And there's good and bad news for all of you, even all of the people with the PhDs and the the PhDs in theology, doctors of theology, and this has been looked at and studied. There is actually no definitive answer. Um, 
in the New Testament, so thank you for coming this morning. You're dismissed. Now, there, there is no specific answer in the New Testament uh, that helps us to understand this. Now, there is some um, lines that we can draw from Scripture that helps us to understand these things, and I'm going to bring these out for you this morning. Um, but there is uh, a lot of ideas out there. Um, people have given. So I'm just going to give you a few of them. I'm going to actually give you about five that will actually help us to understand this. And one of the first one is, is and I think this, I, to me, this is kind of a little bit of the weakest one. Um, it's basically that God didn't command it, that it's completely inaccurate, that they thought God had commanded them to do it, but God actually hadn't commanded them to do it. And they said, um, you know, and we would see this today, the Lord told me to do this, and I've heard and seen this all my life in church, that people say this phrase, because it's an easy phrase to say, the Lord told me to do X. And sometimes it's immoral or sometimes it's wrong. And, but they add that statement to it. The Lord told me, so you can't argue with it. Um, but we could just say, well, God didn't tell them to do it. That God, they, they mistakenly heard the voice of God. Maybe they heard their own voice. Maybe they heard their own voice of vengeance, just wanted to get back. And they just said, well, God told me to do it. So that's kind of the weakest argument of them all. Um, and then one of the things that we do see a lot of the times in the Old Testament um, one of our understandings of God as our Father, that He is also the righteous judge of the world. Um, that He, in the scripture, says the righteous judge of the world does right. And we would see this in the Old Testament that God would use Israel to judge other nations, to bring God's judgment on others, na- other nations. And then also we see the inverse happening at different times of, of Israel's history that God would use other nations to judge Israel when Israel had fallen into apostasy or had fallen away from God, that they were no longer serving God, the one true God. They were serving idols and other gods, that God would use other nations to judge Israel. So there would be um, some understanding, some truth from scripture along those lines. Um, Another idea, this is reason three. I'm already at reason three of five. Um, the reason I'm going through this so quickly is part of the reason that the, what the, the great thing about this question um, that we're going to get to at the end is how does this apply to me? Because I'm, I'm giving, the reasons I'm giving are in a sense sort of philosophical reasons or here's some big ideas in scripture and sometimes uh, we can just come up with big ideas in scripture and then they have no personal application to us or what does this mean for my life today? And we're going to get there and talk about that at the end, but I'm going to give you these ideas first. Um, number three, we see that God in history is dealing with a single nation to bring about his Messiah so that ultimately he brings peace to all nations. I'm going to say that again. God in history dealing with a single nation uh, to bring his Messiah, Israel, so that ultimately he brings peace to all nations. And I, one of the commentators that I read wrote this. I'm just going to read it to you. I think it's excellent. Um, it says, The Israelites were no more belligerent than the peoples who came before them or after them. God wanted to introduce new concepts of love and justice into the world through his people. So in the time um, with, as, nation, as Israel as a nation, that they were all warring nations. They were all um, struggling for survival. And it says, so God wanted to introduce these new concepts into the world. It says this, but, but it was necessary for them to survive in order to do that. 
He did not take them out of their world, a world where resources were scarce and life precarious, but helped them to fight for survival among far more brutal, acquisitive powers, all that an intended purpose of a future eye towards peace. So in in the time where God was choosing Israel, that they were all warring nations, Israel included. And so God was having to have them survive so that he could bring the Messiah into the world. Now, when we, we don't necessarily understand this in our time, but a lot of times nations were warring because one nation had provision and another nation didn't. So they think, hey, you've got food, we're going to take you over. And, and everybody was fighting for survival. I mean, there was no grocery stores. You understand this? There was nobody uh, producing food for other people. There, you couldn't just run to the grocery store in 24 hours. Hey, if your child is hungry, like you actually had to grow your own crops. So in and around this time, everybody was fighting for survival. Everybody was a warring nation. But God chose a nation so that he could ultimately bring about the idea of peace, that we could experience peace. And we see this uh, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. And it says, and it shall come to pass in the latter days. So in other words, we are a warring nation now. We are fighting for survival now so that the Messiah can come and the prophecy comes in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Not, not necessarily a nation, but we're actually going to come to God for ourselves, to the house of God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths, not the paths of a nation, but in the paths of God. For out of Zion, what is Zion? Zion is God's mountain, shall go the law, and out of the word, the Lord, from Jerusalem. What is Jerusalem? God's city. So God's mountain, God's city, not specific to a nation, But God is calling all people and bringing all people to himself. Verse 4. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. So this is God's intended purpose for mankind. That we would, did you see, they, they would turn their items of war and they would turn them into farming tools for lack of a better word that this is god's intended purpose for mankind for us to experience now and then ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth the new jerusalem um, that we would see that is our ultimate future that god's intended not for us to be killing each other for over and over again and fighting over land that god would be everyone's god not just one nation's god that God is calling all people, all nations to himself. This is God's intended purpose. But in this time, they were a warring nation that was fighting for survival. The next reason, number four, and this is the one that I would, um, I think this is the one that satisfies me the most, this idea of progressive revelation. This idea that we see in the Old Testament all the way through to the New Testament, this growing understanding of who God is and what his character is, culminating with Jesus, understanding who Jesus is, that we can't look at a specific Old Testament verse and an an Old Testament action of a nation and get a full understanding of who God is. We can't look at anything in the Old Testament and say, oh, God is completely this. 
that their understanding, our understanding, as people, as humans, understanding about who God is, is growing and it's changing and it culminates in Jesus. So we can see these verses. And once again, this is a direct line uh, of understanding. Those first ones are a little bit, I would say I'd call them a little bit hypothetical. This one has a, a direct line in scripture. Um, so a greatest understanding of who God is in Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has risen no greater one than John the Baptist. Yet the one who was least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So here's Jesus talking about his contemporary, John the Baptist, his cousin. And what does he say? Uh, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. In other words, John is the greatest prophet yet. So greater than Moses, greater than all of the prophets of the Old Testament. And what was John doing? John was baptizing people outside of the temple system, outside of completing uh, the temple formalities and doing uh, sacrifices and doing all of these things. John was saying, hey, repent and be baptized outside of the without killing any animals. And Jesus is saying about John that he is the greatest, the greatest prophet. Greater than anything that we would, seen in the old, we would have seen in the Old Testament. In other, in other words, saying, here in the Old Testament, here was their understanding of God. When we get to John the Baptist, our understanding of God grows. But then it grows further in Jesus. John chapter 14, verse 8 says this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? This helps us to understand that their understanding of who God is and who, who, the things that God does was limited in the Old Testament. We can't get a full blaze of who God is in the Old Testament. It culminates in Jesus. Jesus says, now without the resurrection, these are just empty words. Without the resurrection, this is just, you know, the big, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I mean, anybody can say that. But the resurrection is the thing that actually makes these words important and makes these words valuable. So when we see Jesus, the full picture of who God is, is in Christ in the Gospels. And then we have uh, the rest of the New Testament helping us to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished so that we can understand who God is. Hebrews chapter 1 Verse 1, this, and this portion of Scripture will help us to understand so many things. This portion of Scripture will help us to not fall for winds of doctrine. Winds of doctrine that, hey, here's this Old Testament verse and blah, 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 and I preach on it for 75 weeks and it's just all Old Testament and we exclude Jesus completely. You can't do that because we don't have a full understanding of who God is in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So here was all these different ways, all these different methodologies. Verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed to the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. The exact imprint of his nature. So what the, the measure of understanding that they had in the Old Testament, the law and Moses and the prophets, 
It was not the exact imprint of his nature. Their understanding of God was progressive. They had a measure of understanding. We don't know what is the measure of it that they had. But in Christ, we have the exact print, imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by his word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as such superior to angels as the name as he intended is more excellent than theirs. John chapter 1 verse 16 says this, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Now listen, verse 17, For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the truth that Moses brought out was limited. It wasn't the full truth. It wasn't the full understanding of who God is. Hey, Moses gave us the law. But grace and truth came through Jesus. That our full understanding of who God is, understanding the God of grace, that this, uh, the trueness of who God is is shown to us in Christ. The law was given. In other words, hey, uh, for, for you to remain close to God, you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to follow these laws, and you've got to do these ceremonies, and you've got to do this, and accomplish this. But in Christ, grace... And truth came, the understanding that we have a relationship with God by grace and grace alone. This comes through Christ. This is the full blaze of our understanding of who God is. So that, to me, is the most satisfying thing. It, it, once again, it doesn't satisfy us completely, maybe, maybe more so than others. But just this understanding that their understanding of who, of who God is wasn't complete in the Old Testament. It wasn't fully formed, but in Christ, we have a full-formed understanding of who God is. And this last reason that I'm going to give you, there is also a direct line of Scripture that helps us to understand this principle. Uh, reason number five, that God is showing us that a warring nation ruled by religious laws and vengeance does not produce righteousness. To say that again. God is showing us that a warring nation ruled by religious laws and vengeance, in other words, you hit me, I hit you back. You hit me, I hit you back forever and ever, on and on, forever and ever. Did, we figured this out as children, right? That if we're going to live a life of vengeance, eventually somebody has to stop, right? Anybody that had siblings, they hit you, you hit them back, they hit you. They, eventually, whether maybe it's your parents, has to interrupt and say, stop the madness. This doesn't actually work. This doesn't actually work. And so what God, uh, the laws and the rules and the way, the methodology God was dealing with Israel and with mankind in that time of history, God is giving it to them and saying, hey, I'm giving this to you just to show you that it doesn't work. And we can see a direct line of scripture here in Galatians chapter 3 that helps us to understand that principle. John chapter 3, verse 23, it says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. Or the King James, I think, says schoolmaster. In other words, at this time of your development, you just needed the law. You just needed the law, and here, don't do this. And I mean, if you ever have read some of these Old Testament laws, you know, they're pretty low-level things. 
like, don't have sex with animals. Like, do we really need a law for that? Apparently they did. And so we can look at some of these laws in humanity's development, and they needed these laws. But this wasn't the ultimate purpose for God and his people just to live in this place of laws and religious laws. That the law was given for a time. It was your schoolmaster. And it was to get you to the place of Christ. The law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. But for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. In other words, all nations. It isn't just for one nation that salvation is for all nations. It's not just for one nation to beat up all the other nations and to be the best nation. That God is calling all people to himself. The law was given as your guardian for a time until Christ came. Verse 27, for as many as you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you all are one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So we can see that the law was given for a time. And so that helps us to know, hey, it didn't work for you to think that you can complete the religious laws and then have a relationship with God. No, that was given for a time until Christ. And then the same way we could say about a warring nation that's following religious laws and is just functioning on vengeance. I'm going to give that to you. I'm going to let you see that it doesn't work. You can't live like that forever. It just doesn't work. That God's intended purpose for us all is to have peace with him and then peace with our neighbor. So what is the practical application for us in our lives today in 2016? Because this is a really good question. This is really important for us to know. So what does this mean for us today? And then how do we think about civil authorities in our lives who actually have um, armies and then have control over the police or, or um, who, whatever we would say along those lines? Uh, governments, we function in Canada with governments, with ruling authorities. What does the scripture tell us about that because god is calling us obviously to live a life of peace that he doesn't want us to live a life of vengeance but how do we function within a civil society and how do we understand what god does now so let's read this here in romans chapter 13 verse 2 so our civil governments today have a role and they have a role so that we don't actually have to do certain of these things verse 2 of romans 13 says Therefore, ever who resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this is talking about the laws of the land. Has anyone ever got a speeding ticket in here today? Come on now. Anybody got a speeding ticket? What happened? You incurred judgment, right? You broke the law. You had to pay a fine. You got demerit points. I see couples looking at each other. Uh, about tickets. Maybe there's some recent things happening. I don't know. You broke a law, you incurred judgment. That's how civil authorities work. The, and we live in a country like this, right? So this is not new to us. It's not. But it says God has appointed these things. And when we resist these things, we'll incur judgment, right? No, it's not new news for us. For the rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. So the people that are in charge, teachers, 
policemen, civil authorities, they're, when you follow the rules, they're not a terror to you, right? Only to the bad people. Only to the bad people that get caught. Like some of us who raised their hands when we were speeding. I don't, I'm not saying I was speeding this morning. I might have been. I don't know. I forget. But the ruling authorities are only a terror to those who are breaking the law, right? So you shouldn't be automatically scared when you see a police officer. (laughs) You would have no fear of the one who is an authority. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. God's servant for your good. But listen, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Governments, this is the role of governments today in the world. And these are things that we see. These are ongoing things that go on around the world. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Does everybody love that verse? Did you know that was in the Bible? This is why we pay taxes. We pay taxes to get caught for speeding so we could pay more taxes. We pay taxes to give them the rule over us so that we can have order and authority in our lives, right? It's good for us to pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes of whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And this is why, if I can just make mention, this is why giving at church and giving to God is better in one sense than giving our taxes. Why? Because it takes a choice of our will. We get to choose to honor God, to give to God. We have to pay our taxes, otherwise we won't see you next year. (laughs) Depending on how severe the infraction is, so we are being forced to pay our taxes. But when we give, man, that comes out of love. It doesn't come out of obligation. It doesn't come out of have to. This is why the scripture says when we give, we should give. We should be joyful givers, that I am choosing to honor God. Listen, I'm going to honor God before I honor the government. Come on now. Yeah. Somebody clap. Let's all clap for that because that's a good thing. So I'm not just going to give taxes to the civil authorities and I'm just going to disregard God. I'm just going to dishonor God by not giving because I have a choice. I have a choice, so I'm not going to give. No, this is why, this, this is why giving is such a wonderful thing. It, it, it has to do with our conscience. Well, no one's going to know uh, if I don't give. And that's right. I won't know. I, I don't look at what you give because I don't care in one sense what you give because I don't want to lift up one other person. Oh, they give this much. I'm really going to give attention or this person doesn't give anything. I'm going to hate that person because they don't. I don't know what you give. And it doesn't matter if I know what you give because I don't know what you make anyway. So I don't know if you're tithing or not. All right. Pastor doesn't know what I'm giving. I don't need to give next week. No, you've got bigger problems than me. (laughs) Our giving is about honoring God. Give honor to whom honor is due. Do we owe God any honor? Has God given us anything? Man, God has blessed us with everything that we have. 
We don't pay our taxes and pay our bills and do everything for me and think, well, you know, maybe I'll give something to God, maybe I won't. No. Honor to God comes first. Amen. Pastor moment right there. Okay, so those are the civil authorities. They are the things uh, that help us in our lives and give us order uh, within our communities and with our countries. But what then does this mean for me as an individual? So the government is doing that, but what does this mean for me as an individual? Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. It says, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say, and here's another understanding about the greatness of who Jesus is. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He said, you've heard it said, quoting the Old Testament, but Jesus is about to change it. You have heard it said, quoting the Old Testament law, but now Jesus is saying, here's what I say. And if the resurrection hadn't have happened, we wouldn't happen to listen to this, but now we've got to listen to what Jesus says. Here, you've heard it said this, but I say that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. So you have heard it said of old, don't murder. But Jesus is saying, what? Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. So it's not so much just the, the legalism of, well, I haven't killed anybody. But I'm angry all of the time. But I haven't actually killed anybody. But I have hate in my heart. But I haven't broken the law. See, Jesus is going beyond the law to an attitude of our heart. A warring attitude of the heart. Are you just at war with people all the time? Are you fighting all of the time? Are you having arguments with people all of the time? Just angry. Just this low sort of thing. Just, just right underneath the surface. But I haven't killed anybody. I haven't broken the law. Jesus is saying, if you're angry, then you're liable to judgment. Forget about breaking the actual law. Jesus is dealing with an attitude of our heart. Which in a sense is way worse. It's just it's subtle because we can we can go through life thinking, well, I didn't break the rule, I didn't break the law, I never killed anybody, even though I wanted to. You know, I just, this person did this to me and, you know, I was kind of dreaming how I could get back at them vengeance-wise. I was kind of thinking about it. I've been thinking about it for a couple years, but I haven't acted on it. Jesus said, if you're just angry at your brother, you're liable for the judgment. Beyond just the breaking of the rule, breaking of the law, that God doesn't want us to be at war in our hearts with people. We don't have to be at war. We don't have to hate. We don't have to look down on anybody. We don't have to uh, concoct ways in our minds that are, how can I exact vengeance on that person who's done this to me? We've already seen in the Old Testament, it doesn't work. Vengeance doesn't work. Doesn't accomplish anything. John chapter 18, verse 
36 says this. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not have been delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. He said it over and over again. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is saying, my kingdom cannot be described by a physical border, by one president, by one prime minister, by one political party. My kingdom, Jesus says, is not of this world. It goes beyond borders. It goes beyond nationality. It goes beyond the idea that I got to get back. I got to, they did this to me, so I got to get it back to them. Jesus said, I I know you're not breaking the rules. I know you're not committing murder. But that thing in your heart, that anger, that war that's on the inside, that's the thing that's actually hurting you, even though you're not actually committing murder. There's murder going on in your heart. 1 Peter 2, verse 1 says this, So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. See, well, I didn't kill them. I just slandered them. You know, I couldn't actually exact vengeance on them for the injustice that I think was happened, I think that happened to me. But what did I do? I just, I just slandered them. To anybody that would listen to my story, I slandered them. He says, put it away. Why? Because that's just anger in your heart. It's war in your heart. It's not how God wants us to live. It's not his intended purpose for us. Uh, put away your swords. Turn them into something else. Put away the fight. Let the civil authorities do whatever they're going to do. Pray for them. We should pray for our civil authorities. Do you know that criticism doesn't help our civil authorities? Doesn't help our elected officials? Do do we all know that? Whether our person, our favorite person is in or not in, our criticism doesn't help. But praying for them will help. So we're going to put away malice. We're going to put away deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. James 1, verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger of man. Has anyone learned this? It took me a long time to learn this. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. In other words, my anger, what I am angry about, my judgment about what makes me angry and then what should be the repercussions for that person for the thing that made me angry and what I'm going to do to exact vengeance, to bring justice to the situation, it doesn't work. We have such a low ability to judge We don't know all the facts. We don't know somebody's heart. We don't know what they've gone through. We don't know enough. So we'll just leave vengeance in in God's hands. I won't be trying to exact vengeance. I'm going to be putting down the sword of my tongue. 
just going to lay it down and realize whatever anger that I can produce, it doesn't actually bring about the righteousness of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So whose hand is vengeance in? God's. So let's just leave it in his hands. Well, how am I going to get back? How am I going to... I'm so angry. I'm so hurt. So many injustices have happened to me. And I'm just going to fight back. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The reason I'm laughing is I can remember days where I just thought if I could just be angry enough and eloquent enough, I could fix it. But you know what? I never fix it. Never, my anger never fixed it. The war in my heart never fixed it. So what should we be doing instead? Matthew 5, verse 9, finish with this. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Not just putting away war, not just putting away anger in my heart, but to actually bring peace. Not just say, well, I stopped hating them and I stopped imagining how they would die. That's good. That's a good start. But what? Who are the sons and daughters of God? The ones who bring peace. Not just the absence of war. Not just, I'm, I'm going to stop slandering them now. Because I'm angry. I'm, stop, I'm going to stop telling my story of injustice about how they did this to me and how my first wife did this to me and my first husband did and my best friend did this to me and they did this to me and my, the, the, my old boss did this to me and the government did this to me and blah, blah, blah. Just put down the sword of your tongue and God help me to bring peace. I want to be a peacemaker. Putting away my anger, putting away my thoughts of vengeance. Let's just pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word today. Thanks for listening. If you need prayer or would like to share how this message has impacted you, please email info at thecitychurch.ca.